Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the emergency intro to the Emergency New Statesman podcast. Stephen and I sat down uh, the balmy, heady days of this morning when only David Davis had resigned. However, um, it's now half past three. Uh, Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, has now also resigned, which kind of ups the panic level from like, wow, wow, to like, wow, wow. And as a result, um, I'm making Stephen write a blog. So I'm alone here in the podcast. It's not a catacomb anymore, really. It's more... Not even really a bunk, it's more of kind of a podcast broom cupboard. Anyway, please enjoy the below, but yeah, be, do be aware that um, we now have two, let's count them, two resignations. And let's be honest, this might be like a series of Russian dolls. This might be the second or third intro after all the other people who resigned later this afternoon. But for the moment, this is your special New Statesman emergency podcast. Hello and welcome to an emergency New Statesman podcast. Stephen, this is very exciting. It is. I love the smell of a cabinet resignation in the extremely late evening. Yeah, I mean, I was... Actually, no, I was about to do this thing where I pretended that I was not thrilled about the fact that this had happened at 11 o'clock, but actually, like... Just lean in. I think, actually, one of the things which always annoys me in the safe space of the podcast is whenever people who work in uh, political journalism, unless you're saying, I haven't seen my kids, right? That is literally the one legitimate time where it's one of those things just like, look, if you're bored of it... Get out. Yeah, like, you know, there are hundreds of people who are having to write about, like, the future of marketing techniques who would... Yeah, like, this thing is, like, there, there are a lot of dull jobs in journalism. If right. you don't like resignations late at night... Then are you even alive? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I thought um, Lucy Powell did an interesting tweet, which briefly pricked my conscience, which was saying, you know, we're all sort of treating this as a kind of game and a lark, but, you know, these remember these are real people's jobs and livelihoods at risk, which I think is a useful corrective. But also, I did think... The problem I have with that is that whether or not I do some slightly salty tweets, unfortunately, has absolutely no, like none of us are in control of this process. Like I can't, there is, there's no, nothing I can do to make Brexit go well. Well, this is the thing. I I do intermittently have kind of days and sometimes a whole sort of week where I just kind of feel very miserable about the whole thing. But yeah, this is the thing that seeing as I can't, me being sarcastic about it is not affecting it one way or the other. It's true. I mean, equally, I do think there is a broader problem uh, in the kind of political discourse around it that the um 
because Britain is fundamentally a country where nothing irrevocably bad has really happened in the post-war period, right? There, there hasn't been a kind of um, there hasn't been a kind of proper vast displacement of people coup or a coup or, or a genocide you know, or, or you know a kind of yeah you know, the 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 end of uh, the empire did not lead to political violence in the United Kingdom itself, which is obviously not true of say. France. Right. And actually, and the, the places only... where there were violence, like Northern Ireland, seemed to be have been you know troubled everybody else not an enormous amount. Yeah, and this is the thing: is the one to the extent that they can now forget about the fact yeah. that the Good Friday Agreement is important to people. Yeah, that things like the, the the one part of the United Kingdom to have suffered political uh, violence. Uh, most people who live in the United Kingdom don't really regard it as properly part of the United Kingdom, and are perfectly happy to simply pretend it doesn't exist. So I think that there is also an element of. Uh, and you see it with the fact, and right. I mean, the fact that a just do no deal is 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 even an idea was even an idea to begin with. Let alone the the fact that it still exists as a kind of rhetorical device at a point where even if it wasn't a stupid idea, there isn't enough time to build X number of warehouses by Dover by March 2019. Right? That was a stupid idea to begin with, and it's now a monumentally stupid idea. But you, we are still a country in which it is somehow okay for politicians to sit there like juggling lit matches in firework factories because that's what i don't understand is that it, as actually as the media could we be covering brexit better in the sense of stop covering it as a kind of tory psychodrama like we know this was a, a known hazard during the campaign was it was being covered as like david cameron versus boris johnson's internal party wrangle and there is to some extent the same problem now i think john humphreys has come in for a lot of criticism for his today program interview of david davis post-resignation which is very focused on process and not focused on the substance of what exactly it was in the deal that you couldn't stand for and that kind of speaks into the fact that that is a sort of weird assumption that what matters is what comes out of the checkers away day in the sense of whether or not the cabinet agree to something and then not to fully comprehend that that then is our negotiating position that we take to someone else who might reject it i think it's actually even worse than that right there isn't even a demand that the cabinet's red lines line up with one another, right? So, I mean, at this stage, we should not be in a situation in which the government has, and I'm aware that people are probably going to join in with the chorus on this one, for which I apologise. Nonetheless, it does bear repeating. The government has said that it wants no hard border or border infrastructure on the island of Ireland, no border in the Irish of Sea, uh, in the Irish Sea, but does not want. Continued regulatory alignment with the rest yeah. of the EU. But it's the, fine because they've got, what is it called now? It's called a maximum facilitated partnership. Facilitated, maximum facilitated customs partnership, yeah. Which is you've just taken the two things you were describing before and put them all into one phrase and then said it's a hybrid model. Yeah, and this is the thing, right? I think that, yeah, the Today programme in particular could be doing a, a better job of sort of going like, but you have this red line and this red line explain why these two go together. Uh, the problem is, and I think this is the thing, particularly when I talk to people in print and other publications, is how do you cover a weird, immoving story? Particularly, yeah, one of the one of the wonderful freedoms I realise I massively take for granted here is because I don't have to uh, pretend something is new. I can just get away with, and people who follow my over too closely will know that I have a lot of times gone... But of course, the really important thing here is the December agreement, and nothing and none of these headlines actually matter. Which was when the backstop was written into, you know, saying unless you come up with your magic unicorn customs partnership arrangement, whatever it is, then essentially Northern Ireland and Ireland will not have a hard border. And yeah, I mean, I think the yeah the, the backstop was was yeah the kind of moment where she kind of signed into law all of her previous promises about uh, the Irish border. But this thing, the moment that Theresa Villiers stood up in the referendum campaign and went trade will be free flowing as before, that sharply limited. 
the Brexit outcome. And the moment that Theresa May stood up and went, yes, I too want no change in the status quo around the Irish border. Well, the only way you have no state change in the status quo is no change in the status quo as far as regulations and customs arrangements are concerned. And I mean, it is shocking and terrifying and deeply angering all at once that we have a situation where David Davis resigned late last night because of something which should have been obvious to him at the start, like literally before we triggered Article 15. Well, this is what I loved about your blog that you wrote about it. We were like, they, they were sent into the checker stomach. Not only were they had their mobile phones taken away from them, but also their kind of spads were confiscated, their special advisors. So that meant that they had to kind of read it all on their own. And that was, that is a, there is a certain bit of like, well, until someone did a tweet last night, it was basically, it, until David Davis saw the Telegraph front page, he didn't realise how bad it was. It doesn't, it's not a good look is what I'm saying, is if you go, well, I'm too stupid to understand this. <laughs> so I obviously had to take some time to have it explained to me. Well, yeah, so it's, so she did effectively do sort of dig up her old bag of home office tricks. I, I spoke to a Liberal Democrat who was there at the time who went, ah, oh, I'm getting horrible flashbacks, where what she would do is she would deny information, run everything through uh, Nick Timothy and, and Fiona Hill, and then essentially go, here's option A. Would you like option A? And they're just like, I mean, A applies to the existence of a B. Can I hear hear, hear about B? Uh, let's just talk about A. And but the point they then made is literally the shadow, the cabinet were caught out by the same thing which led to Nick Clegg firing uh, Jeremy Brown, which was he was just not sufficiently across his brief to be able to uh, deal with the fact that Theresa May would ram things through through controlling information. If you are a Secretary of State for exiting the European Union. It, it, you really ought to... Um, Literally, you have one job. Yeah, I mean, and this is the thing. And, and the, the the thing that Brexiteers are getting angry about now is something that they were getting very angry with and making fun of pro-Remain, which included quite a lot of people who were actually advocated for a Brexit vote. But basically, every, cam- every commentator and analyst who went in December, well, you've sharply limited your end state, was basically told them they were being an idiot. And now suddenly they've gone, oh my God, we've sharply limited the end state. And I think there are many things I can't stand about this process, not least than, you know, there are hundreds of actual problems the country has uh, than we could be tackling instead. But it's then, this is the one political project with which I have disagreed, which the advocates do not seem to have bothered to in any way work out how to do. That's the bit I don't understand is that there's the level of education around it is just so embarrassing to have an extent where, you know, you and I talked at the time about triggering Article 50 and the, the kind of madness of doing that before you had any idea of what your red lines were. Obviously, the madness of calling the taking the gamble of an early election to then not use that opportunity when you come back in and you take power again to make, you know, to say, OK, look, situations change, lads. We're just really going to have to sign up to it. Like this is what you, you know, this is what where we are now. Um, but it, you're right, the can has just been kicked and kicked and kicked down the road. And I just, I don't know, I just find it fascinating. I don't know, we have this, I was on Question Time, as you may have known, uh, a couple of uh, weeks, no, now it's now nearly yeah, a week and a half ago. And I was really wondering how I was going to, what I was going to say about this idea about a people's vote. And my feeling about it is, is that it's going to, there's no time for it. There's barely time for a commons vote. There are already complaints from the Brexit Select Committee. They're only going to get, well, I think, three days of debating them before they do this final vote. We talked in the last podcast about the oncoming train that is that meaningful vote and the fact that Labour will vote against it, S&P will vote against it, the Dems will vote against it. And, well, OK, so you have a different opinion to me. I, I was, I had been working under the assumption that the resignation of David Davis and his junior minister, Steve Baker, meant that this they would also not be able to sign up to, to whatever softish deal May puts in front of the Commons. But you don't think that? Well, I mean, the thing is, if you look at the text of their resignation letters, they are quite carefully letters which do not rule out voting against the final deal. They both say, I don't believe in this enough to stay in post, which is a significantly smaller deal. I think the thing about, you know, kind of 
the odd thing is, is because there's so much like lol old where rebels don't rebel, we've kind of all forgotten, which obviously is true, but we've forgotten the kind of bigger story there, which is the, the reason why conservative rebels don't rebel is that MPs in general don't actually rebel well. Often. I mean, so take like Jeremy Corbyn, the most rebellious MP in the history of, of the Labour Party in terms of rebellions in a single uh, parliamentary session. Do you want to know what the peak times in 10 that Jeremy Corbyn ever rebelled in? Just guess as a figure. Well, and, and out of 10 votes, how many did he rebel yeah. in? Well, so now you've you've set it up, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go low. I'm gonna go three out of ten. No, it's two out of ten. Right? This is oh, this thing. Even even, even the most rebellious MP, you know, even someone whose rebellion was sufficiently like loud and it, it helped him win the Labour leadership election by a landslide, was you know was three votes out of every four was going into the lobby with everyone else, right? Because MPs one don't like to rebel. Most of them, and again, this is one of the kind of biases of the fact that as journalists we write about the things which are novel, which means often we don't convey the things which are ordinary, right? So the average MP knows full well that their personal vote is probably about 1,000 to 2,000 if they are particularly well-liked locally. They were elected because of their leader and then they have an obligation to their party's team. That is a difficult enough pressure on a vote where the government is not at risk of collapsing and you're not at risk of triggering a, a constitutional and economic crisis. Uh, but also, the Commons does pass a lot of legislation that is not all that controversial, right? Yeah. That is just, you know, let, let's regularise aluminium standards or something like that, right? Mm. I think that's the other thing. But we don't, which again, we don't cover because it's not, no one's disagreeing about it, which in, in itself makes it uninteresting. Yeah. And also because it's, yeah, it's it's often is legitimately quite boring. Um, so you think the seven Tory rebels would be what they would need in order for to tank it, but you think not? that's not nailed I mean, I on? I think it is plausible that there are seven Conservative MPs who are committed enough then they would go over the top. But I think the thing that is really important to understand about the meaningful vote is that if you... So one, one the thing is, if, if, if May is losing votes on the Brexit side, the maths do become a lot tighter because um, a vote... A Brexit deal that Steve Baker can't vote for, Kate Hoey can't vote for, which means she will vote with the Labour whip to vote, uh, to vote against the meaningful vote. But because it will be a vote in which the future of the United Kingdom, uh, whether or not there's an election, who enters that election as favourite, in which literally everything is up for grabs. If you vote against that whip, you are kind of ending yourself. You know, whether you are Labour or Tory or Lib Dem, right, you know, or, or S&P, whatever, whatever uh, line you take, if you diverge from the party... It's not one that's going to be forgotten. Yeah, you know, that, that is a kind of like, you know, like, you know, your last act in, in, in British politics level of... Can we briefly against. talk about Labour? Because so Keir Starmer, I think, was on um, the TV this weekend saying, no, look, actually, there's just no way. This deal has not met our tests. You know, not a massive surprise, long predicted. Jeremy Corbyn did what I thought was a very odd tweet this morning saying, only, basically, only the Labour Party can be trusted to deliver Brexit. And you were kind of like, I kind of get that that's your messaging to Labour leavers and also Tory Labour switchers. But that's like going on like a cup of cold sick on, on Twitter where you know, your audience is mostly Labour members and activists. Yeah, what's, I mean, what's that about, Stephen? I think, well, I think it's about a couple of things. One, of course, it's that uh, the political preference of the Labour leadership is for Brexit to happen. The second is is that they believe, I think, probably rightly in ba on balance, and they then uh, there is not a real threat to them on their Remain flank in terms of uh, the loss of voters. Um, and of course, the third thing is is that although although there are some people in the leader's office who believe that this is not the case, although Labour's public position, as with any opposition, will always be, well, have another election, the uh, belief of most people who matter within the top of the Labour Party, and indeed most Labour MPs full stop, is there won't be another election, because it's so hard to trigger one under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act unless the executive wants one, um, and the Tories would be crazy to do it. Um, okay, but I, I agree, but the Tories are crazy now. 
but not enough of them, I guess. Well, I think things like that. Well, this this is the kind of yeah, kind of. So to return to the kind of because I guess kind of the 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 umbrella question of this session is well, it does this increase the chances of any of the following: Theresa May falling or the government falling? Now, the central problem the Brexiteers have is there aren't enough of them to remove her as Conservative leader. There so are, right, so there are we think for sort of seventy to eighty people aligned with that kind of hard Brexity flavour, which is enough. What forty eight letters have got to go to the nineteen twenty two committee to of the parliamentary party. trigger a no confidence vote, but then you've got to get a majority in the no confidence vote to bring her down, right? So they could probably trigger one if they wanted to, but it would be kind of pointless if she survived it. Yeah, partly also because when you if you fail, you can't go again for at least a year, and depending on how you interpret the rules, it might be for at least the rest of the parliamentary session. So Oh, that's good. I like that. So, you know, it, it, it is not a it's not a very useful power. The other sort of problem but so it's very hard to remove her as conservative leader. However, of course, if you are a conservative rebel, you it is a lot easier to work out how you'd remove her as prime minister because you just vote with the opposition on a confidence vote. But that is, I mean yeah that yeah that yeah that I that is I think a very hard, probably impossible thing to walk back from so does it increase the chances and Theresa May will face a challenge yes does it increase the chances she will lose said challenge uh no the the kind of yeah the sort of the unknown question right is is yes is at the moment the only there have only been by my count three um conservative MPs who have said on the record that they will not vote for the deal as it stands Andrea Jenkins Andrew Bridgen and Jacob Rees-Mogg now if you think about Labour rebellions to soften the Brexit line against their leadership and Labour and Conservative rebellions by pro-Europeans, and think about the number of people who've said they've rebelled versus the extra, yeah, versus the the people who've actually then gone through with it, those the, the second number is always smaller. So I think at least for Theresa May to be in real danger, you would have to have a situation where more than seven Tory MPs are saying. Do you think Ken Clark will vote yes to the final deal? Well, that is, I think, the other interesting question. Because he was the only Tory who didn't yeah. vote to trigger Article 50. And as all along said, it was terrible. But for him, it's a fascinating question, right? Is it like, that is the kind of, is no deal better than a bad deal? What, I mean, Nick Clegg used to talk all the time about you had to reset what the default option was, right? Was the default option this deal versus reopen negotiations or this deal versus ah, panic, screaming, nothing on the shelves, people not being able to fly to Europe. Um, and if you could reset it to being this deal versus reopen negotiations, then suddenly like the whole, the game is... On again. Yeah, I mean, I think Ken Clark will vote against the government at least once during the passage of the meaningful vote, because obviously there will be many, 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 many amendments uh, to it. And I think the thing that Downing Street is doing, which is quite clever at the moment, is they are successfully creating a second cliff edge. They will, about an hour or so after we finish recording, have a, a meeting with Labour MPs, Liberal Democrat MPs, SNP MPs, Plaid Cymru MPs, and Caroline Lucas. Now, of course, if you are Theresa May and you're losing Brexit votes over the side, the only remaining game in town is to soften it enough to get Labour's pro-European rebels and the Liberal Democrats, not all of them, but enough of them to make up for what you lose. However, of course, to do that, because that, again, is their last act in in in, in politics, particularly for the Labour MPs, you have got to end up with a very, very, very soft Brexit. So Downing Street has now got a situation where they can effectively go, look, cliff, cliff edge one is we have no deal. Um, food rots in ports and, you know, well, yeah, there's anarchy in the streets, et cetera, et cetera. And all Death of the, rides a pale horse Yeah, through. all of the problems you get with without any deal whatsoever. And then you go, and the other cliff edge is, look, if we can't get the votes from you, we'll get the votes from the opposition. And that means a much, much softer Brexit. I mean, single market membership. Yeah, I mean, yeah that's the thing. It's and like, customs I, union membership. I, I think the kind of minimum price that 
those MPs would want in order, to, yeah, would be single market membership. If you're not maybe not exactly Chukaramuna, but in the style of Chukaramuna, then you've got to ask, like you say, the prices. You've got to ask for a really seriously significant. Concern. Yeah, because it is your last act. It is okay, maybe it's not, but it's. I think there's a thing as there's an eighty percent chance, and that's your last act in, in Labour politics. Uh, then you want to be able to say you've, you know, you you climbed onto the pyre for some good reason. One quick thing before we finish: um, Dominic Raab has been announced as the new Brexit secretary. I remember him from such hits as 2011's "Feminists Are Obnoxious Bigots." Men should burn their briefs. He was one of the five authors of Britannia Unchained, which was a very influential Tory pamphlet that was kind of seen as being their very neo-Thatcherite. So it's him, what him, Pretty Patel, Chris Skidmore, Quasi Quarteng, and Liz Truss. Liz Truss. Um, so three of them have now ended up being given cabinet roles. Um, sad for Chris Skidmore that he's only. Well, pretty did, and then she oh, yeah, bailed out again. Can't believe how quickly you forget her storming time as international development secretary, Stephen. Uh, Dominic Raab, I think, has has airbrushed his image down a bit since when he was properly full Iron Rand for now, right? Um, but what else do we know about him? So I guess his main achievement or lack thereof is is being kind of at the forefront of attempts to find uh, a, a judicially sustainable way of repealing the Human Rights Act and getting us out <laughs> oh, of the good, CHR good, good. and failing. I mean, so. Okay, so he's not Chris Grayling, though. Let's let's look on the bright side. Things that he has in his favour, he's 100% not Chris Grayling, which was my fear. And I was going to start stockpiling food at that point. So I think the interesting thing, right, is... I'm sorry, I'm going to be... Even by my standards, this is going to be a very pointed-headed par- paragraph. But um, So one of the things, and this is exposed, is how bad the 2016 government reorg was when you know, they created DEXU, they created Department for International Trade. They also um, dicked around with the structure of education and and, and, and the department formerly known as BIS. Yeah, uh, although th- those two reorgs don't need to detain us unnecessarily at this point. But the thing that has happened is, is it has been proved, as everyone who knew anything about it said, which was there was no point in creating DEXU because Downing Street would ultimately run the negotiations and all you were doing was just moving around people and also so what happened then was that ollie robbins who had worked for theresa may in the civil service at the home office was then made the permanent secretary of dexu except then he didn't get on with david davis and has been moved to downing street and it's basically him that's been doing all the traveling back and forth you know the european commission put out this very sassy statement about the fact well will we miss david davis we can barely remember which one he is Holla. hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, so... And yeah, this is the thing. I mean, in, in basically all major bits of foreign policy, the prime minister does all of it for obvious reasons. And their Europe advisor uh, and yeah, the, and whoever is head of, of the UK's permanent representative at, at the, well, not so permanent, I guess, given we're going to leave quite soon. The impermanent representative. Um, at, yeah, so, so it always is based around uh, Downing Street. I think the interesting thing about this appointment, right, is that if it had been Chris Grayling, right, why is Chris Grayling still in his job? Because he's a someone who has impeccable pro-Brexit credentials, but who also is a genuine Theresa May loyalist. And is also, let's be honest, no leadership threat. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. is He, he knows that he exists as an extension of Theresa May's will, and he would puff out like one of the... Uh, Unlucky superheroes at the end of Infinity War. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, well, it saved me seven pounds fifty. Have you? How? How have you not seen it yet? It's been. In, I'm not. Is it even in cinemas anymore? I don't think it is. I just um, sort of let, let it go. I um, missed that one. But it, it's really good. You should see it. Um, 
he, he knows that he would, you know, would, would, would dissolve without her. Um, she hasn't done that. She has instead uh, promoted someone who is often talked of as a potential leadership uh, contender, one for the future, uh, who... It's sufficiently junior lever. that it's, it's a gamble worth taking for Dominic Raab. That's the thing that's interesting. That could be the poison chalice to end all poison chalices. But also, if you manage to hold it together, a la Jeremy Hunt, kind of managing the NHS traditionally really sticky spot for the Conservatives, has made a lot of people go, hmm, maybe Jeremy Hunt is, is our guy. I guess it's a, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's a chance worth taking if you're Dominic Raab. But I also think, crucially for her, it means that the, the basis of support from a Remain Leave perspective, and I worry as I say this, that, uh, the second that this arrives in people's... Um, Ears. Ears. Someone else will quit. But at the moment, the government's uh, left-right, within a Tory sense, and Remain-Leave balance uh, is unchanged, which is in of itself quite impressive. And also, crucially, in terms of Theresa May's other objective, which is to fight the 2022 election, uh, she's bound another potential hopeful to her preferred version of exit. And she is also... Um, so the, the big thing going for Theresa May is that there is no candidate for the Remainers. They're amber rudded in the shop. No one else around the cabinet from the left of the Tory party passes muster. Right, and Jeremy Hunt, who did vote Remain in the referendum, is now selling himself now as the kind of, hey, kids, you know, in some way, like the sort of Theresa May redux, which is, you know, the best person to deliver Brexit, someone who thought it was a bad idea. Yeah, and that's the thing, is that if you are Nikki Morgan, Amber Rudd herself, you know, a lot of these people, uh, Nikki Morgan's a bad example because she's uh, politically allied with Michael Gove on other issues, but... A lot of the uh, Remain Conservative MPs, if uh, we do end up with the only sort of deal I can work out and keeps the government's uh, commitments on the Irish border intact, which is a vassal state, then um, you are uh, you are stuck with Theresa May because if you're a Tory Remainer, you know that if you shuffle if you you know shuffle the cards, whatever happens, the next leader will be worse for you. So weirdly, uh, while there's the massive downside risk of you know. Uh, no deal and the next emergency podcast coming from you know the thunderdome the chances of theresa may surviving until 2022 have probably also gone up that's all we've got time for but i think it is it is yeah really interesting and we'll see you again for our regularly scheduled podcast later in the week Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.